good afternoon, everyone, and thank you to everyone who uh, participated in the in the choir, the virtual choir, and, and all those who uh, who put it together. That was uh, quite remarkable to have everyone from every different uh, house and be able to sing together that way. Well, do hope you are having a good afternoon, and uh, it is a pleasure to uh, be with you all again in this way, in a in a virtual way, um, <clears throat> as we are stuck with for now. But uh, it is a, a blessing always to worship God together. And uh, as was mentioned, we have just finished the Holy Days, uh, the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we hope it has been inspiring and meaningful to you. And it has been for me and my family. It's very different, of course, being isolated as we all have been, uh, not being able to get to gather together and, and certain challenges that way. Uh, but um, it's it's always a blessing to keep the holy days and to learn and be reminded and refreshed about God's plan. And the challenges that we are facing today, these days, <clears throat> really provide the springboard for what we'll talk about for a little while today in the sermon. We've been experiencing the COVID-19 uh, crisis now for a number of weeks, and I'd like to address some things and maybe uh, from this perspective ask this question. Does God have your full attention? Does God have your full attention? We are walking this way of life. We are on the road to God's kingdom. We've been given the gift of salvation, uh, been given the opportunity to be forgiven of sin and to be in the process of being saved as well as fully saved uh, when Christ returns, when we will have the chance to be born into his family. All of these things we were reminded of at Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've learned and we've heard and we've been encouraged to understand our need for forgiveness through Jesus Christ and what our response should be to his sacrifice. And we've been thinking about that these last few days, haven't we? So let's think about this in light of the crisis that we're all going through and our communities, our nations, our world, frankly, and what our response is to this crisis. Is it something that is prodding us and encouraging us to give God our full attention? If you like a title for today's sermon, Does God Have Your Full Attention? I want to break it down into three points today, three areas that we'll talk about relating to the crisis that we have been going through for some time and and, uh, continues. The first point to consider is simply we are in a unique time. We are in a unique time. This is not surprising. We all know this. We have talked about it. We've heard about it. We've heard Mr. Weston mention it a number of times that this is a time like none other in recent history, at least in in living memory for most people alive today. Uh, A pandemic that has literally closed down the economies of countries around the world. It's it's really sort of mind-blowing. It's sort of shocking. 
even as we get a little bit used to what's happening, it, it still is, is hard to fathom exactly what's happening. Uh, much of our economy in this country, in the U.S., is shut down. I believe the number is about, at, at this time, about 17 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits. Uh, unemployment may be reaching somewhere around 13%. That's a figure that, that, that I've heard. Uh, the U.S. government has earmarked uh, between 3 and $4 trillion in aid to individuals and businesses. <clears throat> and, of course, these numbers are, I believe, uh, already greater uh, and, and, and more um, uh, devastating than even the housing collapse in 2008. It's changing the world in ways that probably will not go back, as Mr. Weston has mentioned a number of times. In The Economist, uh, dated April 11th, page 7, under the title, The Business of Survival, the writer says this, Most bosses and workers have been through economic crises before. They know that each time the agony is different and that each time entrepreneurs and firms adapt and bounce back. Even the shock ripping through the business world is daunting. With countries accounting for over 50% of the world's gross domestic product in lockdown, the collapse of commercial activity is far more severe than in previous recessions. The exit path from lockdowns will be precarious with uneasy consumers, a stop-start rhythm that inhibits efficiency, and tricky new health protocols. And in the long run, the firms that survive will have to master a new environment as the crisis and the re response to it accelerate trends that are already in process. So it's sending a shock throughout the whole world, and many people don't even know exactly. We don't even know exactly how it will affect the long-term economy. Uh, certainly technologies will be used more that we are sort of being forced to use. Uh, global supply chains are going to change dramatically. Uh, perhaps other, other things that we don't even foresee. But it's been happening at a breath, breathtaking pace and how fast and how complete this change has been. But I think maybe <clears throat> what is perhaps um, striking for us is how much it touches all of us. Because normally you have a political issue or a military conflict or or something of that sort in, in economic news, and, well, it's, it's something happening in Washington, or it's something happening in another country, or maybe it's just having to do with the, the governors of, of our state uh, or states. And yet in this crisis, it's everywhere, isn't it? <clears throat> it's happening in our local grocery store. When we go to the store if we need to, we see people with masks on, uh, we see people separating themselves by six or ten feet. Uh, if you talk to someone, what's on their mind? They're talking about this issue. Uh, students are home from school. Schools are closed. Those who are in public schools, businesses are shut down. Many of us know uh, acquaintances or family members who, who at least have, have acquaintances or relatives who have the virus. Uh, so... It's touching us in a way that a lot of other crises do not. It's even touched the work and the church in multiple ways. We're not meeting 
in our normal congregational worship. Uh, it's forced us to use new technologies, and the list could go on and on. Uh, here in the office, it's dramatically changed things. We Most of us are working from home if we can, except for a few departments where we have uh, vital uh, interests and have to keep operating. Uh, but even for those uh, employees who are coming into the office, it's like a ghost town. There's an echo in the building, and it's very different. And as mentioned uh, in the announcements today, in the mailing department, uh, you know, we, we can't uh, by, by uh, law or, or at least by restrictions that have been put down, we cannot mail to about 60 different countries around the world. Things are very, very different. And so in that sense, the crisis has gotten our attention, hasn't it? This crisis has gotten our attention because we can't avoid it. We can't help it. You know, when the government tells you you can't work, the government tells you you can't go to work, um, or when the government tells you you have to follow certain guidelines, um, very quickly we find that we're all being touched by this. And I think as we go through it and have gone through it, it's important to stop and think. This is a momentous time like no other. And we shouldn't just gloss over that, but let it sink in. You know, there are times when something happens in the world, in society, to God's people, as Mr. Weston has mentioned, that you just know this is a juncture in time that you won't forget. It's a pivot point, perhaps, that we'll look back on and, and see as an important juncture in time. Let's go back to uh, Exodus, the book of Exodus. We read uh, from here recently, but I just want to point one uh, scripture out because, you know, there, there have been uh, important pivotal junctions in time uh, throughout history uh, for the world, for God's people. Uh, the Passover was certainly one of them, Exodus 13. Um, we read in verse 3, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. He said, don't forget. Take a mental picture of what's happening today and remember it because it's going to be a pivotal event in your life. He says, verse 8, And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. He's talking about keeping uh, unleavened bread for seven days. But the point is, it was a momentous time. And can't you just imagine that what the Israelites were thinking after their lives had been upended and how a, a totally different reality was beginning? and how they began to, to, to sense this is a pivotal time. How will this crisis that we are in today, uh, how will we look at it sometime later on? What other dominoes will fall because of this? It, it will become more clear as time goes on, leading up to Christ's return. But it's good to wrap our minds around the fact that this is a unique time. But that's not all. It is a unique time, but there's something more. Number two, number two, the current crisis is part of a bigger picture. The current crisis 
is part of a bigger picture. Yes, this trial is unique for us. This trial is unique for those who are living today. Uh, But if when we expand our scope a little bit and start looking at, at history, start looking at prophecy, we begin to understand that what's happening right now is a part of a plan. What's happening right now is a part of a prophecy that was laid out, frankly, millennia ago. Let's turn over to Leviticus 26. Because after the children of Israel came out of Egypt, not long after that, God gave the Israelites a whole collection of teaching that we can read from today that has been preserved for us. And part of that collection of teaching involved prophecies. And some very, very specific prophecies about their future. And that if they would obey God, then they would be blessed. If they would rebel against God, they would not be blessed. And why is this significant for us today? Because we know that many of our nations that we are living in today... Uh, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the United States are a part of modern Israel. We know that these prophecies in Leviticus 26, as well as others, partly were meant for us. Certainly they were dual. Certainly there are things that were, were partly fulfilled when the children of Israel went into the land and obeyed and then disobeyed and were taken out of the land. But there are a number of things that we can see to show and prove that part of it is yet for a future time, meaning for our time. Let's look at some of the things that he said. Leviticus 26 and verse 3. He said, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I'll give you peace in the land. You shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. And we have had an unprecedented level of peace in the Israelite nations and even other nations Uh, in recent years, haven't we? Unprecedented level of peace, an unprecedented level of of abundance and food and having our needs met. But notice what God said would happen to Israel if they disobeyed him. In verse 14, But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes... Or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And stop just for a moment and think. Are we in a time when our people, many of them by and large, not only disobey God's commandments but despise them, are horrified by them? They see the scriptures as something abusive, and something oppressive, and if anyone who believes the book tries to follow them or tries to back up or defend this book, they're seen as a bigot. They're seen as closed-minded. Isn't it a little striking just how this is happening right before our eyes? 
not just disobedience, but absolute abhorrence for God, his laws, his word, the book that we place so much importance on because it is God's word. He said, if you get to this point, I also will do this to you. I will even, verse 16, appoint terror over you. We have had that explained, that perhaps that could be referring certainly to a lot of different events, but could we not apply that to the 9-11 attacks, which were unprecedented in our history up to that point? I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease, notice this, and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. Disease, epidemics would be a part of the prophecy for modern Israel if they would rebel against their creator. That's what we see. That's what is written in the book. That is what was written down about 3,500, almost 3,500 years ago. It was prophesied. Disease, epidemics. Verse 23. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. Now, this is also an important thing to note, I think, that God allows calamities or brings calamities for a specific purpose. That is to try to get people to wake up and turn their attention to him. He knows where behavior leads. He knows the misery and the heartache. He knows the brokenness that is a result of, of disobeying his laws. And sometimes he just lets our sins and the, ju- the, the, the result of our sins be the thing that judges us. And he doesn't even have to do anything. Because we're kicking him out of our society. You know, think about it. How many viruses could have gone viral, but God stopped them? How many ways, how many times that we are not aware of that God had his hand on our nations and protected our nations, but as we continually rebel, maybe he's pulling back that protection since we don't want him involved in our lives as a nation, as a society, by and large. He said Israel would be affected by diseases more and more as they rebelled against him. Leviticus 23, verse 24. Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I'll punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I'll bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. And when you're gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. Will pestilence, will disease epidemics be part of the way God chastises our nations and us for our sins? Absolutely. Now, how do we know that part of these prophecies are for us for the end time? Well, just a couple of things to point out here uh, in Leviticus 23 and verse 31. Notice one of the things he mentions, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I think Dr. Winnell has brought this out in times past that uh, laying your cities waste, that did not happen in ancient times. That did not happen when the northern house of Israel was taken captive. 
In fact, 2 Kings 17.24 shows that the cities were just repopulated by people that the Assyrians brought in. didn't happen yet. So therefore, it's yet for a future time. Uh, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 21. This just shows that, that we need to, if we are living in the end time, and if, if we understand that we are a part of, uh, many of our nations are a part of the modern Israelites, uh, this should get our attention, especially when we see what's happening today that is very unprecedented and, and unique, but even more when we see the bigger picture of what's been prophesied. Deuteronomy 28 and verse uh, 68. Just going straight to the end of this prophecy just for a moment, we see another clue showing that definitely these prophecies have an end-time fulfillment, not just an ancient fulfillment. But notice what he said. At the very, very end, breaking into the thought, Verse 68, And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Has that ever happened? Were the Israelites taken back to Egypt in ships when they were dispossessed from their land in northern Israel or in uh, the southern house of Judah? Of course not. It's not happened yet. So we see, we can conclude that these prophecies definitely are dual and do have a a part to play in the end time, which means still ahead of us. Well, let's go back to verse 21 of Deuteronomy 28. Verse 21, of course, again, this is the uh, parallel account of... um, the the other in Leviticus that we were we were reading before Deuteronomy 28 and verse 21 The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess The Lord will strike you with consumption with fever with inflammation with severe burning fever with the sword with scorching and with mildew and they shall pursue you until you perish Disease epidemics are part of the result of disobeying God. Part of the result of rebelling against God. Notice 58, verse 58. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants. Notice, it wasn't just for that generation. Extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you are afraid, and they shall cling to you. We heard about that in the sermonette, about how one of the blessings as they came out of Egypt was, I'm going to take away these diseases from Egypt, from you, and you're going to be a spe- you're going to have special protection. And as a result of sin, he says, "Look, I'm going to lift my hand, and all those diseases are going to impact you again. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed." 
You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because why you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. A tragic, tragic projection as a result of their rebellion and as a result of their sin. But that's what he said would happen. Now, let's think about this for a moment again. The coronavirus we're experiencing right now is a big deal, isn't it? It's having a tremendous impact on our lives. We're all feeling the effects of it on the economy. We don't even know how long it's going to impact uh, many different parts of our lives. But is this the big pandemic that destroys our nations? You know, just look at the scope of the prophecy Moses just relayed when he said, you will be left few in number. What does that mean? You know, we haven't seen anything like that yet, have we? Any death is tragic, but how many deaths are we seeing today as a result of the coronavirus? In the U.S., so far, about 30,000 projected to go Beyond that, but about 30,000, we have a population of almost 330 million people. Does this sound like this current crisis is going to leave us few in number? What about the UK? How many have died in the UK? 13,000 about. They have a population of 68 million. In Australia, they have a population of about 24 million and only at least from the figures I can find, 65 deaths in Australia. That just seems way out of, out of, uh, out of line, so low, but that, that's what I, I found. The point is, what does few in number mean? It sure sounds like a whole lot more than, as far as people dying, than, than 65 or 13,000 or 30,000. In other words, we haven't seen anything yet. When we look at what's happening, we are, yes, in a unique time, but it is just a precursor for what's prophesied to come. That's the point, brethren, which will really pale by comparison. And this should make us stop and think. You know, right now we're seeing in the news in certain places, certain hot spots in Italy, in New York City, parts of China, uh, where the medical facilities are overwhelmed. But just imagine not 30,000 deaths or 60,000 or 100,000, but imagine 100 million or 200 million people who come down with, with horrible diseases with no remedy. Totally different scale of disaster and because of our sins, and it's prophesied, based on our trajectory, we are seeing and living and breathing a foretaste. Should that not get our attention for what's projected to come based on our current trajectory? We see other glimpses of the future as well. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4. This is a very familiar passage. Jesus gave a, a glimpse of the future. Just 
dropping down and and uh, breaking into the thought, he said, for many will come in my name, verse 5, at the end, and saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. Is Jesus wanting us to be terrified because of these things? No, he said, do not be troubled, but get your attention on God because some pretty big things are going to be happening. Notice in Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, we read of the seals being opened and, and again dropping into the in the middle of the context. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. We review this you know, every year at, at, at Trumpets. But think about it. About 156,000 people have died because of the coronavirus thus far. Now, again, many of them had pre-existing conditions or were in a weakened state already. Even so, it's been alarming. It's been unique. It's been shocking to us. But we also see a bigger picture, don't we? That at some point, not just in the U.S., not just in New Zealand, not just in Australia or Canada, or Great Britain, but all over the world, a quarter of the population dying because of these different things, violence and famine, pestilence, disease epidemics. And then later on, with the final plagues, a third of mankind perishing. You know, as God gets the attention of the nations, and nations are humbled, it's going to happen on such a greater scale And I think that's important for us to keep in mind. As we think about God getting our attention, there is a bigger picture, there is a bigger focus that we're supposed to focus on. Which brings us to the third point. Because we know this time is unique, and because we can see it's only one part, one small part of a bigger picture, number three, we can understand what God is doing And that makes all the difference. We can understand what God is doing, and that makes all the difference. You know, there's an article that came out of the Telegraph, April 3rd, with this headline. Religious leaders confess they are struggling to answer the question, why is God letting this happen? The text reads, religious leaders have admitted they're struggling to answer this question when asked about the coronavirus. In an unprecedented Zoom chat between the leaders of the Catholic, Anglican, and Jewish faiths, they praise technology for allowing people to remain connected during the pandemic. However, they also discuss the philosophical and religious dilemmas during their 23-minute conversation. They don't know how to understand it. They have no clue what's going on. They don't see the big picture. They don't know that God is working out a plan because they're not keeping 
the holy days with the understanding that God's church has, brethren. We just completed a portion of the holy days, and it makes all the difference. Do we fathom the times we're living in? And more importantly, do we fathom how important it is to understand these times, why God is allowing these things to happen? Ultimately, that he is in the process of getting the attention of modern-day Israel and ultimately the whole world to bring them to salvation. As it says in 2 Peter 3.9, He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There is something that he is doing, that he is working out. This crisis does seem to be getting some people's attention. Listen to this report. This is from the Jerusalem Post, dated April 2nd, written by by Joel Rosenberg. The title of the article, Millions of Americans Say Coronavirus, A Wake-Up Call from God. The writer says, with the coronavirus pandemic causing unprecedented lockdowns and economic distress in the U.S. and around the world, a new national poll provides a fascinating and surprising look at how Americans are viewing the crisis and how it is altering their spiritual habits and interests in the Bible and biblical prophecy. Some pretty interesting statistics that he gives from this study. He says a stunning 44% of Americans polled said they see, quote, the global coronavirus pandemic and economic meltdown, quote, as a wake-up call for us to turn back to God, to faith in God, as signs of coming judgment. Pretty, pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. 44% in our secular world, in our, in our world that has rejected so much about uh, the Bible, even and about any belief in God. Now, my suspicion is if other Israelite nations took this poll, the numbers would be significantly down. Uh, Americans tend to be more outwardly moved by religious feeling and religious fervor, uh, at least for the short term. Uh, I think we are named Manasseh for good reason. It passes quickly. We forget, don't we? <clears throat> But it does present an interesting opportunity for the work that there do seem to be a number of people who are searching. Going on in the article, he says, fully one in five non-Christians, 22%, polled, said the crisis is starting them to start reading the Bible and listen to Bible teaching and Christian sermons online, even though they usually don't. that's, That's kind of interesting. Uh, and also search online to learn more about Bible prophecy and God's plan for the future of mankind and have more spiritual conversations with family and friends. Now, I understand that still means that four out of five are still going merrily on their way, but some people who don't normally think about biblical things are thinking about biblical things. Pretty remarkable. He says, consider, too, how many Americans in various age groups believe it is time to return to faith in God. Now, listen to this. 42% of young people age 18 to 29 believe that, or or as they took this poll, are responding that way. 42%. That's a little shocking, I think. But young people are searching, many of them. 47% of people age 30 to 40. 43% of people age 41 to 45, 55. 51% of people 
age 55 to 65, and 40% of people over 65. That statistic of the over 65-year-olds is lower than the 18 to 29-year-olds. Interesting. When we talk about uh, people who are secular, who are not interested, and, and, and just sort of a wide swath of age groups, they actually have more responses of people who believe that this is a time and this is a call to get back to some type of faith having to do with the Bible, a better response among the 18 to 29-year-olds than those over 65. Going on, he says, these are no ordinary times. Americans in near full lockdown are anxious and understandably so, yet tens of millions are turning to God, the Bible, and Christian sermons for answers, many of them for the first time. That may be the most important silver lining in this crisis so far. It is interesting. And for us, I think, it shows us that there is a window, perhaps, of opportunity for us as the church to try to reach these people with real answers. And I know Mr. Weston has directed us to to think about ideas and how we can push the work forward and how we can try to put out the truth in front of them. Because what does mainstream Christianity offer these people who are searching, by and large? You know, those who are who are looking, just a vague comfort in a crisis. Make the problem go away. No real repentance. In fact, Mr. Weston explained this in a recent uh, briefing he gave when he described how the Prime Minister of Australia has, has openly prayed for deliverance and committed the nation of Australia to God. Amazing thing when you, when you think about, you know, just a few months ago or six months or a year ago and, and just how, how, how much on the forefront of the liberal radical agenda Australia is and amazing how the Prime Minister of Australia could, could say that openly. And Mr. Weston praised him for his courage and for his sincerity, but mentioned that there's one missing element. That's national repentance. National repentance. You know, Hosea chapter 7 and verse 14 says, They return, but not to the Most High. They return, but not to the Most High. When there is a calamity, there is a religious response oftentimes, but is it a call to return to really following God in the Bible or a form of godliness that is fraught with errors and lies and cheap grace? How long will this current feeling last? You know, thinking back to the 9-11 attacks, hard to believe that it was 20 years ago, uh, or so, almost. At that time, when that happened, the churches were filled. People started going to church again. Hollywood even had some movies that were coming out that were very violent, and they held back the release of the movies because, you know, that's kind of insensitive when a lot of people are dying to have a movie and make money over other people dying. And things changed for a few months. For a few months. And then everybody got back to normal. The churches were empty. In the last 20 years, what have we seen in this country? We've seen a sea change from even be, 
even the time of 2001. We have seen an absolute sea change in, in how our country looks at morals, how our country looks at personal behavior, how our country by and large sees the Bible, how our country by and large sees God, and how our people see people who believe in God. Was there a lasting change? Did our country as a whole take the 9-11 crisis and really give their attention to God? We are in a unique time. Today, we see commercials on TV that have to do with prayer and have to do with the Bible and have to do with ministries that offer help and offer uh, a hotline that you can call if you need help and encouragement. But we've been here before. How long will this current rush of religious feeling last? But more importantly, what does it mean for us? Notice in Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 12, when Solomon built the temple and dedicated it, he prayed to God for protection and guidance and deliverance from calamities, from warfare, from famine, from epidemics. And, and here is God's reply when he appeared to Solomon, one of the most beautiful and, and comforting and meaningful passages in the Bible. Second Chronicles 7, verse 12, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and there's no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. What is God saying? That when I allow calamity to come upon the land, I'm trying to get people's attention. I'm trying to get their attention. But who is listening? If they humble themselves and pray and change their lives, I'll intervene and I'll help them. He's looking to get our full attention. You probably have seen this scripture. It's, it's, it's being quoted by a lot of people on social media today. Sharing, liking, you know, sending around nice Nice thoughts, nice quotes. <clears throat> Here's one example of someone who posted or at least shared this scripture. It came out in an article on the Fox News website. Courtney Kardashian shared a Bible passage on social media that suggests God would punish an evil world with an epidemic. It was this scripture, Second Chronicles 7.12. The reality star, 40, shared the passage on her Instagram story. Wednesday night after it was first posted by another account, and circled with the message, pay attention, children. Well, you know, I guess when one of the Kardashians quotes a Bible verse, that's news, isn't it? But, you know, how many people are just getting caught up in a, in a religious feeling, in a, uh, a religious sentiment? And, you know, it's sort of becoming cool. It's sort of becoming uh, something that, that, that people do as opposed to repenting. Let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 7 because there's a parallel account here. 
First Kings chapter 7 and verse 37. We actually read the prayer that Solomon prayed that led to God's response that we read in Second Chronicles. First Kings chapter 7 and verse 37. When there is a famine in the land, this is Solomon praying before this, this big host of people in Israel. And when he had offered tens of thousands of oxen and tens of thousands of sheep at this incredible dedication of the temple to the great God. He said, when the heavens, I'm sorry, uh, verse 37, when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew or locusts or grasshoppers. And, and just to stop for a second, we must not forget what's happening over in Africa. You know, the coronavirus has taken the news by storm, but there's a horrific locust plague going on in East Africa and has been going on. February uh, uh, was devastated. Many countries over there devastated by it. Uh, One of our pastors in Kenya uh, wrote to us about how the lockdown and the locust plague was really making life difficult. But there's a second wave about to hit that region and uh, said to be 20 times worse. You know, we, we need to be praying something to, to pray about, continue to pray for our brethren over there. We have brethren in East Africa who are facing this. And it's easy just to get wrapped up in, in our problems and, and uh, maybe even you know, figuring out how to reduce boredom because we're tied up at, at home. There, there, is a, there is a bigger picture. But God is in control no matter what the calamity. And he hears the prayers of his people. Notice, uh, going on, verse 37, uh, the, the, the blight or the mildew or the pestilence or locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel... When each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. What a what a remarkable prayer and statement that Solomon made. There, there's a lot in there. And first of all, he said, you know, whether, whether everyone prays, whether the whole nation prays and turns and repents, or just one person prays and repents and turns his attention on God, that God, he, Solomon implored God to hear them. Do we want our nations to, to turn to God? Absolutely. Do we want there to be a wholesale repentance so the things we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy won't take place? Absolutely. Is it likely it's going to happen because of the trajectory? Not likely. But does it make a difference that we pray individually? Is God hearing our individual prayers? Will He respond in calamity? When we look to him, the second thing he mentions is the one praying knows the plague of his heart. Solomon pegged it right there. 
He said, you know, praying for deliverance is not just about taking the calamity away. It's not just about getting me out of this trial. Get rid of this thing I'm in. And brethren, you know, as we are, are in this trial or any other trial that we're in, it's not just begging God to take the calamity away. It's about acknowledging the plague of our heart. It's about, as Mr. Weston said in, on the first day, uh, removing the idols of our heart that sometimes are there, that we've allowed to build up. It's about what Mr. Lee was talking about today. After we've cleaned the room and if we ex- have examined ourselves and we've, we've, we've looked at our life and we've asked God to correct us in gentleness and we do our best to get rid of those things, that we continue to get rid of them and we replace them with, with His ways. Acknowledging the plague of our heart, not just the plague that is afflicting our our people. And maybe there's no glaring sin. Maybe it's acknowledging that maybe like Job, sometimes God is just wanting to get our attention in a deeper way. Remember the story of Job? Remember how, how Job was a righteous man and, and blameless in all his ways? And yet he went through trials and his response was, God's not fair. He's not dealing with me in a way that is fair. He blamed God for his problems. He demanded a day in court, so to speak, with God. And God answered him. And God revealed himself to Job. And God showed Job. He said, you know, Job, I know what I'm doing. I created you. I made you. I give the breath that you breathe. I'm working something out. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to get your eyes on a bigger picture You've been way too focused on yourself and your own righteousness. I want your full attention on me. And God got Job's full attention. And we read the the end of the story, Job 42.5. We're not going there because we're still here in 1 Kings, but verse 5 of Job 42, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I see you in a way that I didn't see you before. And thank you, God, for allowing this trial to break through the, the pride and the vanity and whatever else there was that was holding me back from seeing you and giving you my full atten- attention. Thank you for shaking me and waking me up, Job was saying. Now I'm ready to do your will. Back in 1 Kings, at the very end, he said, verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. What is God looking for? Why is he allowing mankind to suffer so much? He is teaching mankind to fear him. Not to be terrified of him, but to give him awe and respect and honor and glory. To get off their own agenda, to stop their own ways, as Mr. Weston put it in the first Feast of Unleavened Bread Day sermon, this is the way I see it. No, rather, Lord, you have my full attention. Show me how you see it. 
I want to know how you want me to do it. You know, the fear of God is so misunderstood in this world and even by us, I think, many times. Because, partly perhaps, Satan is the god of this world and he's created a, a, a skewed vision and view of God many times. Uh, certainly to the mainstream Christian world where, where God is a horrific and, and, and hideous monster who, who, who would want to fry his children and torment them forever. That's not God. But maybe it's colored some people's view of the fear of God. When we fear God, it simply means we are giving him our full attention. That we have our eyes turned toward him and we're ready to do what he says. We're going to put him first no matter what. You know, there's an interesting parallel with with animals and training animals and horses in particular. <clears throat> you can tell where a horse is focusing by his ears, watching his ears. If a trainer is is working with him and has his attention, those ears will be pointed toward the trainer. And sure, they might flick this way and that, you know, if a dog barks or uh, an engine backfires or something, but they keep coming back to the trainer. And whether the trainer's on the ground or on the back of the horse, that, that horse's ears will show that he's listening to the trainer. And he's respe- receptive and responsive to that trainer. And it's a beautiful thing when you sense that this horse is, is so connected to the trainer walking or, or riding, uh, that that trainer has his full, absolute full attention. Now, how do you get that kind of attention? Do you beat it into subjection? Absolutely not. The horse has to know that you're in charge. It has to know that you're not going to allow any funny business. Uh, it has to know that you're not going to let him get the bit in his mouth and, and charge off in, in a, a dif- different direction that you don't want. But it's about developing a relationship with that horse so the horse learns he can trust the hands of his master. And after a while, when that horse is trusting his master so much, just a slight hand motion or a slight shift in weight or a slight nudge with a, a leg or a knee, and that horse will respond. The horse is listening. Not out of terror, not out of uh, being horrified, but because the trainer, the rider, has his full attention. And it's a beautiful thing when you're riding a horse and you sense, I'm not fighting this horse. I have his full attention. There's really a sense of oneness between the rider and and the horse. <clears throat> Let's turn over to Psalm 147. Psalm 147, because God takes great delight in when we are getting to that point. And, and none of us do it perfectly, but when we're approaching that goal and that ideal of, of really giving our full attention to God, notice Uh, Psalm 147, verse 1, Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Verse 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. 
The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. Those who are willing to listen, He lifts up. Those who are willing to respond, He lifts up. Those who are willing to give their full attention to Him, He lifts up. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food, to the young ravens that cry. He does not notice delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. That, that's not what impresses him. Verse 11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who what? Fear him in those who hope in His mercy. Now, why does He take pleasure in those who fear Him? Is He just craving us to be terrified of Him? No. It's that He takes pleasure and He delights in this this sense that we are turning our heads and turning our hearts to Him. A beautiful thing. Just like a rider and a horse, acting as one. You know, we we kept the Passover just uh, just a, a short while ago. Hard to believe. Uh, it seems like it's uh, been been a long time, uh, but just a little over a week ago. But one of the things we review at the Passover is that through Christ's sacrifice, God is reconciling the whole world to Himself, isn't He? Colossians 1.19, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself. By Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. God is, is in the process of bringing and reconciling the whole world to Himself, of bringing all humanity into that state of oneness. Through Christ's sacrifice, and through a responsiveness of the world. But, but in order to do that, he first has to get their attention. And he first has to get our attention. You know, again, people think of fearing God as being in a cowering, quivering state. Nothing could be further from the truth. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is after God spoke the Ten Commandments, directly to the people. And uh, in verse 18, it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. They missed the whole point. God wasn't trying to kill them. He He wasn't trying to destroy them by talking to them. He was just trying to get their attention. It reminds me of when we were small, uh, my mother talking about what it's like working with children. That, uh, and with us in particular, I think, you know, when she gave us spanking sometimes, the, the real reason was just to get our attention. And I think boys in particular, uh, sometimes it's hard to get their attention. And corporal punishment for those small ages has a remarkable way to get their attention. So now they are responsive and they're ready to learn. It doesn't mean beating them into submission. And you know, brethren, we, we have to be careful about that. 
Corporal punishment should never be used that way to just beat kids into submission. It should never be done out of control. It should never be done in a fit of anger. It's a teaching tool to get their attention so they're open to being taught. But the teaching component has to go with it. And a lot of love and a lot of hugs to comfort, to help when there are tears. That's the purpose of getting their attention. That's the purpose of, of, of corporal punishment, to get their attention so they're willing to be open to the teaching. Isn't this what God was doing with the Israelites? Look at what Moses said after they said uh, <clears throat> that he, they thought he was trying to kill them. Verse 20, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Now, is that a contradiction? He said, Do not fear, because, but do fear. Don't fear, but do fear. What, what is he talking about? In fact, it's the same word, same root word. One is a verb, one is a noun. Uh, but uh, what does this mean? How can we understand this? Well, we have to understand the context and what God is meaning by this. Moses was saying, God is not talking to you so that you'll run away in fear. He doesn't want you to be terrified. He doesn't want you to run away from him. God is talking with you to you from the mountain to get your attention. So that he, so that you have your eyes on him, and so that your fear, your undivided attention, is at the forefront of your minds. That's what he was talking about. That is so critical, brethren, and especially as we approach the end times, because there are fearful things happening. In fact, some I've heard some uh, in some cases. Uh, respiratory problems just because people are so anxious and so fearful of the disease, they wind up having respiratory problems. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of anxiety because of things like this, the pandemic, and the economic problems that are going to go with it. But there's so much more coming. So much more coming. This is just the tip of the iceberg. So how are we going to approach the future? And how are we going to teach our children to approach the future? Are we just going to scare them out of their wits? Are we going to tell them you better be good so you don't wind up in the tribulation? Is that our teaching technique? Or do we explain to them that God allows tests and trials to get our attention? and to get people's attention. And the sooner we, they, everyone, the sooner we give God our undivided attention, the better things go. You know, Proverbs fourteen twenty six says, In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence, and His children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. Is that an oxymoron? The fear of the Lord is strong confidence? I thought fear has to do with not having confidence. Well, that's why it's, fear of the Lord is different from just being terrified and horrified. The fear of the Lord 
means we're looking to Him. And the more He has our full attention, the more we're at one with Him, the more we're connected to Him, the more we feel close to Him, the more we're going to have confidence. Not in ourselves, but in Him. You know, going back to the training of horses, horses are naturally skittish animals. In the wild, they're not predators. They are the prey. They're the ones who are eaten. They're the ones who are chased. So out of preservation, self-preservation, a loud pop or a bang makes them frightened. They run away. It's amazing how this huge animal, big, strong animal, can be frightened like a grasshopper. And so a trainer will train his horse not to budge even when there's a loud pop or bang or explosion because the horse has learned to trust the master. And the trainer will even introduce some of these outside stimuli, even like a plastic bag. You may amaze how a plastic bag can be absolutely frightening to a horse because it sort of blows along in the wind and is unpredictable and it crinkles. And a trainer may, may just take a plastic bag and put it on a, on, a, on, on a stick. And while he's comforting that horse, he will introduce this outside stimuli to the, to the horse so it learns to understand that this scary thing, if I'm in the hands of my master, I can overcome that fear. It's not so scary. Why does God do that with us? Because we need to be able to trust him. He allows us to have trials so we will look to him, we will turn to him, we will cry out to him. And learn to trust His hands. Learn to trust His touch, His voice, His words. So that we get through it and we get on the other side and we begin to think, you know, I got through it. He was there with me. He didn't take it perhaps all the way. He, he allowed some of the pain so that I would look to Him for help. But I have more confidence because He brought me through it. Isn't this what God is going to do and is doing with the whole world, to teach the whole world, not because he hates them, but because he loves them? You know, one of the things we're hearing about a lot these days is that everyone is at home, our lives have changed, our routine has changed, our pattern has changed, and we have more time on our hands. Now, not everybody does. <clears throat> There's some people who have their own business, some people who have been laid off and are searching for a job or searching for work or searching for, for contracts if they have their own business and, and they're and it's a struggle. And they're they're scrambling to keep things afloat. But for many of us we do have extra time on our hands. What are we doing with the time we have right now? You know, the president some time back said we should get to know our families better. What a, what a great idea. What a great idea. Um, there's other advice that's coming down, you know, on overcoming boredom, things you can do. What are we going to look back at, brethren, when this trial is passed? Are we going to say, you know, I'm so grateful that, that yeah, the COVID-19 was kind of scary, but with the virus at all, but I'm so thankful because I was able to binge watch some of my favorite shows and they went 27 hours and I, I got through them and I'm so thankful I was able to do that. I'm so glad I found ways to kill the time because I was so bored. 
you know, could we be missing something? We need to think about, if we have extra time, we need to think about where we are in history. We're at the end of days. This is just the beginning. There's much more coming. And we need to think about using our time, redeeming the time because the days are evil, as it says there in Ephesians, I believe. You know, maybe we haven't been studying or praying like we should. Yet we heard on the last Holy Day from Mr. Ames, that's our lifeline. That's abiding in Christ and and letting Him abide in us. Maybe we need to make some incremental changes like we heard a week ago on the Sabbath. And, And those incremental changes will grow and add up, and over time those will help us to be able to handle the big changes that are coming, that are coming down the pipe. Maybe we've been distracted by the frenetic pace of our world and now we're forced to take a bit of a pause to some degree. Are we just trying to fill that time or are we using it to think? Whatever age we are, whatever level of of spiritual uh, journey we are in, are we using our time to think about Drawing closer to God. You know, if you're a young person, maybe you're struggling with some questions about your your life and your identity and, and, and who am I and, and is this church going to be really mine or is it just my parents? Uh, can I really depend on God and on the Bible? Maybe this time is, is time not to just burn the time, but ask some hard questions and take some walks and, and meditate and really look into the Bible and Maybe start taking the Bible study course or taking some Living Ed online classes. But maybe letting God use this time in a, in a way that we're going to look back and be very thankful. I think it's no coincidence that the current crisis happened during the Holy Days, right around Passover and Unleavened Bread. At least, I know this problem is bigger than just us, but at least for us, it really has put the time we have, extra time, in the context of examination, in the context of where we are. You know, we're, we're able to catch our breath, think about our lives, what we're doing, and where we're going. What better time than the Passover, days of unleavened bread, to take stock of where we are in our lives and how much does God have our full attention. Let's turn over to Psalm 91 and verse 1. This is a well-known passage about pestilence. And I think we just... I would be remiss if we wouldn't conclude with, with this because it's so powerful and so inspiring, especially as we think about what's coming ahead but how we don't have to be terrified. And we are a part of the, the work that is getting this message out to the world. We're not just pr- keeping it to ourselves. We're trying to help as many people as possible understand as well. Psalm 91, verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, and Him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the perilous pestilence. 
shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night. Why? Because we have a relationship with him. We're close to him. We're drawn to him. We're connected to him. He has our full attention. Nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Now, does that mean that we just walk around, you know, in a holy, holy stance all day long? We pray all day long. We study all day. Of course not. We live our lives, but we put God first in a way perhaps we have not done before, as we heard in the sermonette. You have made the Lord your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Mr. Weston has quoted this as well. Verse 14, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. What a tremendous promise. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. You know, the ultimate promise is really long life. And that is living forever. But so many blessings in this life until that time as well of guidance and protection and comfort. So brethren, these are unique times we're living in. But even bigger events are coming. Let's deeply fathom that we are living in the last days. We need to take the warnings of God seriously. But most of all, let's be grateful that it has been given to us to understand why these things are happening and that we are a part of the work that is taking that why to the world. And let's let these events prod us in a way perhaps we have not done thus far to turn our full attention to God in whatever way that means for us personally. We all have our challenges. We all have our obstacles that we're facing. God is there for us to give us help and comfort in times of trouble. Thank God for that and to give us life forevermore.